me, Ellie Krug. Of course, who else, who else in the world starts a radio show like that? Hello, how are you? Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. <clears throat> I am thrilled to be talking with you again about idealism and idealists. We have another great show. The big interview is with Jessie Taken Alive Encounter. She is a child, award-winning children's author. She's native. She writes uh, books with native themes. Uh, you'll just love her interview talking about compassion and kindness and our interconnectedness. I just – you just – and in my C block, of course, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. And if you're a regular listener, okay, you know that ordinarily um, in this block, in the A block, okay, um, I highlight an idealist, some, someone present day or historical who worked to make the world better. I'm going to deviate from that a little bit today to talk about what makes for an idealist. I'm going to – don't worry. I'm going to still reference an idealist. Well, actually, I'm going to reference two of them. Um, but I want to talk about how idealism interplays with ego and self self ishness, selfishness, and even saviorism, okay? And I'm going to raise an important question about America right now, believe it or not. Yeah, Ellie Krug, her little small Ellie 2.0 radio show is going to raise a very important question. So as I've already said, um, an idealist is someone working to make the world better, okay? Um, That mission, a positive change, has to always be front and center, though, okay? As I've said, it's before you've heard me say this, listeners, um, it's not something you fit. Changing the world is not something you fit in between yoga and take out sushi. Okay, to be an idealistic person, to be idealistic as well, takes hard work, vision, a huge amount of physical and emotional energy, and great persistence. Trust me about all of that, because yours truly here is uh, under the toll right now about all of this idealism, all the change she's trying to do. Many of the idealists that I've highlighted in the six years of this show um, have even paid um, the ultimate price for their idealism. Um, they died or were killed because of their efforts to change the world. It's that serious. It is that serious of a business. On top of all of that, idealism often takes Self-sacrifice, where one foregoes or gives up something dear to themselves in favor of the greater good. And I want to emphasize that concept of the greater good. To self-sacrifice sometimes means putting ego aside. And for many people, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do, to put your ego aside. For the greater good. I mean, after all, okay, our ego uh, is the product of decades of gaining or creating a reputation and often achieve, of achieving rewards and privileges, okay? You know, we build up our ego, we get successful, we get rewards for that. It's very hard, very hard to let that ego go. Um, but yet, sometimes for the world to be better, one must forego their ego. Entirely. It is against that backdrop that I want to highlight an improbable historical idealist and juxtapose him against another idealist of today. Now, many of you know that my heroes are Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, whom I, 
I call the special case. The main reason that their idealistic words sank into me was because I, now remember, I was alive when both were alive. I was 11 years old when they were murdered. And I had started reading the newspaper, and we had got actually two newspapers, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, and watching the news when I was seven or eight years old. I, you know, it was the 1960s when I was growing up, and that often meant watching the nightly news with Walter Cronkite on CBS or Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. I think they were on ABC. There were only three, you know, in 1968, there were only three. TV stations. There was no such thing as cable. It, you know, you okay. It was partly through those news reports that I learned about racism, okay, in our country and income inequality. And of course, every night it was about the Vietnam War. I vividly remember, I think it was every Thursday, um, that the count came out for the number of U.S. service members who had been killed. In the week before. I remember that. Sometimes those numbers were five, six hundred in a week. And thus it would be that I was watching a special news report on the night of March 31st, 1968, almost 50, 56 years ago. And it was on that night when Lyndon Johnson spoke about the war. He wanted to give us an update. He had come to America, to the American people a number of times to talk about the Vietnam War, which we were not winning, which was we were hopelessly caught up in. And it was something that I witnessed in real time on that night, on March 31st, 1968, because on that occasion, during that presidential address, President Johnson said these words. With America's future under challenge right here at home with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause, whatever the price, whatever the burden, whatever the sacrifice that duty may require. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you. Now, I, now I know that uh, Johnson is a challenging historical figure, 
And many say that he declined to run for re-election in 68 because clearly he was so very unpopular because of the war and it was a hopeless cause for him to even think that he would get re-elected. However, um, I believe that truly he was an idealist. For proof, I teach on allyship. Um, You know that. That's my day job that helps pay the bills, although it's becoming less frequent because of this anti-wokeism. I teach on allyship, and when I ask attendees, uh, part of that is a kind of a quiz thing that I do. I ask them about historical figures. And one of those things I ask about is an event relates to a person named Private Felix Longoria, who is a Latino, killed in World War II, and whose family, um, they didn't recover his body until 1946 on the Philippines, and whose family wanted uh, a visitation, a wake, um, and a a burial um, in his hometown of Three Rivers, Texas. The funeral home refused because of It's fear about white residents complaining of allowing a Latino wake at the funeral home. I mean, yeah, that stuff happened all the time. And a newly elected congressman from Texas named Lyndon Johnson intervened in that matter. And he helped arrange for Private Lingoria's remains not to be buried in the local town, but instead at Arlington National Cemetery. Quite an honor. Now, remember, it was 1946 in the height of Jim Crow. So, Lyndon Johnson, a congressman from Texas, white congressman from Texas, intervened to help a Latino. Later, of course, Johnson was, after he became president, after President Kennedy's assassination, Johnson was the driving force behind the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 65 and the Great Society, including Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, I don't know... I don't know how you can become more idealistic than what I just laid out for you about Lyndon Johnson. Um, And in essence, uh, I would argue to you, okay, uh, that in a grand idealistic gesture, Johnson put his ego aside and did what he thought was best for our country in 1968 to let another – some other Democrat – you know, grab the nod and and try for the presidency. Johnson, I th- think it took a great act of courage on his part to say I'm not and, – and forgiving of his ego, forgetting of his ego to, to do that. Now, all of this brings me to another idealist that all of you are familiar with. His name is Joe Biden. There's no doubt that Joe Biden has been idealistic ever since he was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1972, back when I was in high school. No one can argue uh, with his good heart or his compassionate soul or his willingness to be publicly vulnerable. But Joe Biden also has an ego. And he also appears to have some saviorism um, that only he, Joe Biden, can save America from Donald Trump. That ego and that saviorism were on display on just a, cu- <laughs> a couple nights ago, Thursday evening, in, you know, at the White House, at a press conference, after the special counsel report about Joe Biden's handling of classified documents came out. Now, we can certainly argue that the special counsel report by Robert Hur was a political hit job, okay? You know, Hur, Hur 
declined to prosecute Joe Biden, but then he went to lengths to talk about Joe Biden's bad memory, his inability purportedly to even remember the day when his son died, those types of things. And her, he, he, no doubt, I mean, he certainly went out of his way to highlight Joe Biden's poor memory. That said, the fact remains that hers report has hit a nerve um, in all of America by citing Biden's age and related memory problems. And Joe Biden didn't make it any better because in trying to rebut that report on Thursday night, President Joe only made things worse. Uh, when he talked to the press for not more, I don't think it was more than 10 minutes, but boy, I watched that. And I was, I was saddened greatly, and particularly by his confusion, confusing the president of Mexico for the president of Egypt. You know, and the polling is clear. As NBC reported um, this week, nearly two-thirds of voters are concerned about Joe Biden's age. I think that it may be up to three-quarters. I heard that on the way in um, uh, to the station today. The Her Report and Biden's response on Thursday night will only exacerbate this stuff about his age. I mean, we, we are at risk of losing younger voters, uh, not only be over the age thing, but of course over Biden's handling of uh, – you know, Gaza and uh, the Palestine, the Palestinian issue. Um, and the and the polling is also clear that the majority of voters don't want a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, the two oldest presidential pairings in history. President Joe, our current idealist, needs to take a page <laughs> out of uh, out of the Lyndon Johnson playbook. And President Joe needs to do what is right for America. He must put his ego and his saviorism aside. President Joe must forego running for another term. He must do as Lyndon Johnson did. Forgo running for the better of the country, that self-sacrifice for the common good that I talked about before. He needs to do that. Our common good needs a different democratic presidential candidate. We do. Or I fear that the future of America is absolutely lost. And I would hate, I would hate that that future comes to bear because of ego and saviorism of Joe Biden. You can quote me on this. It's with great regret that I call for President Biden to not run. But I need to. Our country needs it. We need someone different. Okay, there you go. That's all the A Block. When we come back, we'll interview our, uh, do the big interview with Jesse taking a live encounter. You're going to really like what she has to say. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Thank you. I want to hold the hand inside you.
And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio. Time for the big, big, big interview. And I am thrilled to have here uh, a wonderful human. Okay, and I think idealist. Uh, her name is Jessie Taken Alive Rencounter. Jessie, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you. It's such an honor to be your guest today. Oh, I'm honored to have you. So, Jesse, just to give my audience a little bit of an idea about you, you are from South Dakota, okay? You are a children's book author, um, writing native theme books. Um, you are, by training, if I understand right, a, a school counselor, and you did that for a number of years before you decided to become essentially full-time writer and full-time speaker. And and I have you on the show because you are an artist in residence um, presently out at uh, Eastern Carver County Schools, where I'm also on the school board. And uh, we've got a big event tomorrow morning where you're going to be highlighted in, in the center of all things. And um, and so welcome to the show. I want to have you on because you are absolutely an idealist. So tell us a little bit about why don't you why don't you begin telling us a little bit about your background, okay? And what how it got to the point where you started writing children's books. Sure, of course. So I grew up on the Standing Rock uh, Lakota Nation. Um, I always like to introduce myself in my Lakota Nation or my language, because even though, you know, some of the listeners might not understand the language, my late father, who was a fluent speaker, always said, you know, our spirits understand. So, what I said in my Lakota language was good day, relatives. I greet you all with a heartfelt handshake. My Lakota name is which means woman who was born from the stars. My English name is Jessie. Maiden last name is Taken Alive. And my married last name is Rencounter. And I come to you from the band of Lakota called the Hunkbapa Lakota. Some people may have heard of the name Sitingbo. Uh, Sitingbo's band of Lakota people is where I come from. I grew up on the Sanding Rock Reservation um, all of my life. And I was pretty blessed to grow up in a beautiful, safe home with parents and such. And I was just having this conversation probably about maybe half an hour ago. And that I was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a really safe home and such, we're all exposed to traumas, no matter what. Um, that's just what this world is about. And it help, helps teach us lessons, right? One of my big lessons that kind of guided me towards what the work that I do today is growing up in a reservation. Um, my best friend at the time was actually my first cousin. There's not much to do in a reservation. And I played basketball, me and her played basketball. And we realized that, you know, the best way to get improve our game is to play against guys who are better than us and we get better. So we became really close in middle school with about six boys in our community. And fast forward to my sophomore year, her freshman year, and this was huge. It was traumatic for uh, uh, for us. Six of all six of those boys had passed away. Oh my God. One was to a, um, alcohol poisoning and five to suicide. Oh. We had an epidemic of suicide on our reservation. And I, um, you know, was angry as a, as a high school kid because I didn't understand what was happening. And we, at the time, this is before social media in the 90s, right? We had Tom Broca on NBC Nightly News. Um, they covered a story of our reservation and 
all of what was happening. And so it made national news. And we had all these experts who had great intentions, child psychologists come in from New York and California and such, wanting to help, which was great. But in my teenage mind, I was mad. I was angry at my friends' passing. I was angry at like, well, people don't understand what it's like to be a teenager on a reservation and lose some of your best friends. Right. And so in my mind at the time, I was like, Growing up, I was like, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be on the big screen and, and such. That was a pivotal time in my life. I said, no, I can't be an actress. I need to help in the community. What can I do so people don't have to experience this pain that we're experiencing? Not just me as friends, but also their families and such. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can become a psych- psychologist. Went off to college, majored in psychology and American Indian studies. And I was like, what now? You can't do much with American or with a psychology degree unless you go on into a, a graduate program. One of my college's friends says, hey, Jesse, I'm going to grad school for counseling. And I thought, oh, that's pretty close, you know. And uh, we had to choose a traditional track of counseling or a school counseling track. My late grandfather was actually one of the very first um, educators in South Dakota that was Native American. He was a rarity and he really pressed education. Um, And so I knew the importance of education. I thought, you know, what if I be in a school? I can work with students. I can also help them with like mental health stuff and such. And so I ended up becoming a school counselor for 15 years, 10 of those years working with elementary students and five years with high school students. Along the way, I realized how powerful storytelling is. As Native American people, storytelling is in our DNA. We've used storytelling for thousands of years to pass down the history, to share and shape the the younger children, teaching them different values and such. Um, And so I got to grow up with one of the best storytellers ever, my late mother. And so I utilized storytelling in the classroom and I used my lessons as a school counselor. And along the way, teachers and students would say, you know, Jesse, you should really turn your stories into books. And I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. So I actually published my very first book five years ago. Um, and before it was actually published, it won a regional award called the uh, Great Plains Emerging Tribal Writers Award in 2017. Tell- and the next year it was published as a book. Jesse, give uh, because the most of the audience is only audio. So tell the uh, tell the uh, you're holding the book up here, which I, it's a beautiful cover. Tell the audience the name, uh, the title of the book, if you would, please. Sure. So um, it's called Peta Shows Me Sue the Light. And, you know, being a school counselor, I was always asked from students, Mrs. Rencounter, why does so-and-so do this or do that? Basically, the general question of why do people hurt each other? Mm. Why is there fights? Why is there addictions? Why is my loved one doing this or that? And that's a really hard question to answer to children. You know, it's a hard, um, and, it's a hard question to answer to adults as well, but go on. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and, and being Native American Lakota, we always know the power of our dreams and we always know the power of prayer as well, too. And I had a really tough time being an only counselor at a school of 650 where it was a high needs school. Every day was crisis. Right. And a particular day I went off into the Black Hills where we live and I prayed. Black Hills are considered very special, sacred to our people. And I prayed and I asked for guidance. Well, I had a dream two nights later where an old man came to, and he took me and he shared with me this beautiful, powerful, life-changing message for me. And he says, remind the children 
In fact, remind everybody of all ages where we come from. Remind them of, of, of how beautiful we all are and how we're born with these beautiful lights and how when we are kind and we share love with other people, it spreads, right? And he, and he reminded and he showed me through images why people do hurtful things. And it's because when we're born, we're all born with beautiful, bright lights. And along the way, we get hurt with people, other people's words and actions and such. And our light starts to dim a little bit. Right. Mm. And so he says, but, and so I asked him this old man in my dream, I said, you know, okay, so this makes sense. So the people who have bright, beautiful lights, none of them have been hurt. And he kind of laughed, you know, kind of like a, like I was a little kid, but what a, a gentle laugh. And he says, no, he says, here's the only difference between people with bright, beautiful lights and people with dim lights. He says, it's choice. The people with the bright, beautiful lights, they've also been hurt as well. They've been hurt. They've experienced trauma and pain. He says, but they choose forgiveness Mm -hmm. and they choose compassion. And most importantly, they choose love and to be reminded where we come from. And he says, remind the children of this, remind them the power of love and compassion and forgiveness and what we can do to make the world a better place. And he showed me this image of all of us helping each other, those with bright lights, helping those with dim lights up off the ground. And when they would stand, their lights would shine bright. And pretty soon the world was shining with all, everybody with bright, beautiful lights. And it was such a powerful, beautiful dream. Um, and when I woke up, I was like, oh my goodness, okay, this is what I need to share with the kids. And I, I didn't share any with any part of this dream with my husband or anybody. I woke up and I was still trying to digest all this information. And at the time, one of my daughters was just a little girl. She was only six years old. And there I am brushing my teeth and she's showering and singing away in the shower. And she stopped singing and she goes, hey, mommy. She goes, you know, we all have bright lights in us. And I'm like, what? And I'm like thinking twilight zone here going on, right? So I go over there and I pull up in the shower curtain. I was like, baby, who told you that? And she goes, nobody. I just know. And she goes, we all have these bright lights. And when we're good at things, she goes, like like me, I'm a great singer. When I sing and people hear my voice, my light shines brighter. And and by then, I'm like crying, right? Because I'm like, oh my, oh God. my goodness, this is powerful. Okay, this dream was real. And so I turned this message that he shared with me in my dream, and I turned it into a story. And that was my very first book that I came out with. And I won an award for it. And it gave me a platform to be able to get my books out to other people. I have now five books out with a sixth one coming out um, later this month. I'm really excited for them. And, you know, one of the questions is, which one is your favorite book? But I always say, that's like asking, who's my favorite daughter? Like, my husband, I have four daughters. Like, we can't, we can't answer that. It's like, every one of them, they all hold a special place. Well, so, so Jesse, what a fantastic story, okay, of of enlightenment, you know, and then going forward into the world. And you and I did a prep call uh, yesterday, and I told you, and, and my longtime audience listeners will remember that the words compassion and forgiveness have been recurring themes on this show. Mm-hmm. You know, we had uh, somebody now, it's been a couple, oh, probably three years ago, come involved with the Forgiveness Project, and you know, which is a traveling exhibit that goes around the country, actually goes around the world, around the concepts of forgiving 
um, those who have offended us or harmed us in some way. You know, and, and much of my work is core uh, to the concept of compassion. And so what you're saying resonates greatly with me and I think maybe hopefully with my listeners as well. Tell me, um, you've been going across the country, you know, with, the, with your books and about your messages. And what do you, you know, you're at Eastern Carver County Schools uh, this week. What are you doing when you, you come into the schools or when you're going to other places and maybe just simply talking to adults? Give us an idea of how your, how your, your work has expanded beyond the writing. For sure. So the general message that I try to share in all of the books um, is just about being a good relative. You know, being a good relative means not just being being good to your family members that you're related to by blood. It, it's being a relative to everything that is living. Mm-hmm. In our Lakota language, we have this beautiful phrase. It's an ancient phrase that, you know, sometimes we even utilize as a prayer in itself, or we put it at the end of a prayer. And in this phrase we say, we say, and what that means is we are all relatives. We're all related. And we have this, um, this knowing that we all come from the same creator and we're all equal. We're all beautiful. No matter our culture, our skin color, our language, whatever it is, we're all relatives. And we all know this as, as little children. And as we grow older, we see and we play witness to what's being role modeled around us in society of learning to fear what is different than ourselves. But in actuality, we're all from the same place and we're all relatives. And when we can think of things, not just other people, but like the plants and the little tiny crawlers and our uh, water relatives, you know, that live in the water, when we call them relatives, we can acknowledge that we're all, are the same, that we come from the same, we're equal, we're not above anybody else, right? And when we acknowledge that, we ask ourselves, how can I be a good relative? What am I doing to be a good relative? Um, and so the overall message is that, you know, some of the books are about like bullying. How do we overcome? Like, what do we do when we witness somebody being bullied or we, we ourselves are being bullied or when someone tries to make us feel bad for who we are, how do we continue to be proud? Right. That's like the book I've been sharing this week and such. And so it's the general message is like, how do we be a good relative? And I guess that's a base, the basic way to put it, whether my audience is with children or with um, adults as well. So that's like the best way I can describe it. And are you seeing a different reaction between the children and the adults to your message? You know, I always say this, the younger we are, the closer we are to remembering who we all were when we were born. And I always remind adults and children that were all born as being loving beings. Every one of us, not one of us is born with hates, right? right? Not one of us is born with learning to discriminate against others who are different or anything. We're all born. So I always felt the younger we are, the, the, the easier it is for that message to come across. Mm. In fact, in our Lakota language, we call the little, little children, we call them wakaija. Waka means sacred. Wakaija means the sacred beings. And so they say, we, they already know this. 
it's as we get older, we start forming and we start putting people in boxes and, and, and categorizing people. And we forget about that. We're all just relatives. We're one big family, I like to say. And so um, it, it's a little bit easier to, to share these messages with, with children because I feel like their spirit still remembers, right? We, our spirits, no matter what the age, remember. It's our minds that come in with <laughs> our experiences of what have happened, what's been told to us and such. So it is a little bit easier with the children. Um, I, I, but I, that doesn't scare me away from sharing my message with adults. Okay. So a couple of uh, other things. So tomorrow, uh, now the 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 um, wrinkle here is that this sh- right now your interview is going out over Facebook Live, so everybody um, who's hearing it can find out about tomorrow. By the time this airs tomorrow afternoon, um, the event will be over. But let it. Can you tell folks what's going on in uh, at this at uh, the Chanhassen High School tomorrow morning? Yeah, sure. From tomorrow morning from nine to noon, there's a big event that's open to the public. And there is not, um, it's not just for me, I'm going to have all five of my books set up there for sale. But in addition to that, there are performers that are coming in dancers and such, but they also have different activities for kiddos, um, activities that do with water. And they all get like a free booklet about water and such. Um, but there's also, you can have bring kids in and they can read to dogs. Dogs, that's called Tales for Tales, right? <laughs> you can sit and read to dogs, um, dogs that are in training to be therapy dogs, right? And so like when we tell the kids this and they get so excited. Oh, I'm getting excited. Hold on. I'm getting excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be a great event. Okay. And uh, and if people want to find out more about you and your work, how can they do that? Where would they go? And 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 if they want to buy your books, how can they do that? Sure. So I you can um, you can find some information on my social media page, Jesse Taking the Live Run Counter, um, like Facebook or you know I have a smaller audience on Instagram, but also I have a website called JesseRenCounter dot com. It's just J E S S I E. R-E-N-C-O-U-N-T-R-E dot com. Um, you can purchase some books there, reach out for different um, uh, contact information for like presentations and such. But you can also purchase the five uh, four of the five books on Amazon or any type of um, online retailer, eBay, um, Barnes right. and Nobles and such. So Okay, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Now, Jesse, uh, we're just about done here. And... Uh, you know, I always ask uh, my guests if they believe they're an idealist, and I define an idealist as someone trying to make the world a better place, um, actively trying to, work, to do that. And if they believe they're an idealist, you know, what made them that way, okay? And I, I'm going to guess you think you're an idealist, hopefully, okay? And I might have some idea based on what you said, but, but if you believe you're idealistic, what, how'd you get there? What what was it in your life that caused that to happen? Yeah, for sure. I think it was really um, the the beautiful teachings from my parents, grandparents, our culture, but also the the really challenges, the the hard times that I experienced of the traumatic events of going through some of the things like I shared earlier in the interview. Right. Um, knowing that, what can I do to contribute? My late grandfather always says, "Whatever you do when you grow up, always choose to be an asset to the community." 
whatever that may look like, as long as you are contributing. And that's an old belief amongst our Lakota people of like, what can you do to contribute to the tribe? Everybody had their place, right? We did have storytellers. We had medicine people. We had whatever it is. And that was the mentality. I always contribute to that, you know, and, and I was fortunate enough to be born into a family who reminded us about those teachings of always make sure you are being an asset. So being hearing that every day <laughs> as a little girl and such is like, okay, what can I do? What is my role? And going back to being, how can I be a good relative? What am I, what's my contribution? Because all of us, we're not, nobody's getting out of this world alive, right? <laughs> all of us are here for a temporary time. Yep. And I believe it's our opportunity to ask ourselves, what am I going to do when it's my time to go home into the spirit world? What is, what is it? What's my legacy? Is it, am I going to be remembered for someone who caused harm <laughs> or am I going to be remembered for someone who has made and contributed to the world to be um, a better place than when I left? And for me, that's through my stories <laughs> and that's through my presentations and stuff. I don't know when I, I don't know it, today can be my last day or 50 years can be my last day. I just want to make the best of it every single day I'm here. So that is just so incredibly beautiful. And you're so right. I mean, we have the choice of how we want to be remembered and how we're going to live our lives. So, well, Jesse, it has been a real honor to talk with you. I'm thrilled that you're here at Eastern Carver County Schools. I'm thrilled that our school has sponsored you and uh, our school district. And I just wish you the best as you go forward. I really do. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you for hosting me. And it's my honor. So thanks for what you do, Ellie, um, to share your voice and, 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 and for all the work that you do and literally putting your voice out to the world. <laughs> well, so. well, we can spend a lot of time talking about this voice. Okay. All right. <clears throat> well, Jesse, taking a live encounter. Thank you so very much for being on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Listeners, check out her books. <clears throat> Buy her books. That would be really great. And if you're watching on Facebook Live, come on out to uh, Chanhassen High School tomorrow morning from 9 to 12. Um, it's open to the public, free, and, and bring your kids because I think that that would be really exciting. Okay. Thanks so much, Jesse. Take care. All right, listeners, when we come back, we'll do my C block where I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, if you like what you hear, go visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a sec. We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. Okay, uh, Jesse, take it a live encounter. Please go check out her books. Buy her books by all means. I just, yeah, just wonderful. I, I, I so love talking to her to prepare for her interview because she just kept saying things like, that's what I always talk about. I mean, my goodness, you know, and, and uh, anyway, okay. All right, so you know I'm working on uh, my book, uh, the second book. The first book was Getting to Ellen. The second book is Being Ellen. 
and uh, we're I'm getting close to getting a real good draft done. I'm having to write new copy, and part of the new copy I wrote um, involved um, the week of the unrest in Minneapolis after George Floyd's murder. Um, and uh, you know, I tell I'm going to tell the story in the book about how. Um, uh, I, I was paying attention to what was going on, and I saw a lot of journalists being, you know, being manhandled um, by the Minneapolis police. There was one journalist shot in the eye who lost her eye um, with a rubber bullet, and I just felt, even though, who may, you know, I'm I'm like this very small with a very very small micro J journalist. Um, because at the time I was writing for Lavender Magazine in addition to doing this show um, and writing also for Minnesota Women's Press, I felt this, com- this need to go, down, to go down to Lake Street. And I, on the Friday after the Monday after George Floyd was murdered, I came here to the station. I asked the station manager, I need some credentials. Can you get me some credentials so that I can go down in case I get stopped by the police? And God love Chad Larson. He's just the greatest guy in the world. He's like, but we don't have credentials, Ellie. And I'm sitting at his office, but he's like, you know what? I can make you credentials if you just sit here for five minutes. He types away on the computer and, you know, the printer whirs and all that stuff. And out comes this thing that looks like, you know, press credentials. It's got AM 950 on the top and my picture and, you know, it says my name and big numbers. And, and it was number, it was it was number zero 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 nine five zero, and Chad laminate. He's like, "You want me to laminate?" I'm like, "Yeah, that'd be great." And punches a hole in the top and gives me a lanyard. And he said, "Here you go, Ellie. Don't get killed." <laughs> so I, I went that night uh, down to Lake Street. I rode my bike down there and and uh, tied the bike up and and I had a I had I had my press credentials around my neck and I had a had a paper I had a notebook and a pen and as soon as I got off the bike I worked not even a half block and I met a man who was holding a Molotov cocktail trying to light it and he was having trouble but eventually he got it lit I mean trust me I did not help and then I watched him toss that Molotov Molotov cocktail into a collection of cars in a parking lot and boom and I'll never forget the smell the burning plastic. It it didn't leave my nose for two days. And everyone I talked to on Lake Street, you know what they said? We're fed up. Things need to change. We haven't had change. That's why earlier in this show, I called for President Joe not to run. Because we really need change, big change. Okay, well, there you go. Short C block. I got to thank my producer, Brett Johnson, who's always doing a great job. And I can always see him between the glass. And I know when I do good because Brett smiles at me. And so that's always a good sign. I got a kick out of the press credentials. I remember that back in 2020 when we had those. Yeah. That was something else, Brett. Hopefully, my listeners or my readers will enjoy the story. There's a little bit more to it than what I just relayed. But, listeners, hey, you know, this idealism stuff is real. It is. And you don't have to be an idealist to go out and make the world better. 
All you have to do is go out and do something good for someone. And will you do that between now and when you hear my voice next? Thanks. Ellie Krug, over and out.